Hi, and welcome back to Compliance Bites for another exciting episode. I'm really delighted to welcome Shauna McKenzie today, the founder of Sturgeon Ventures. That was set up back in 98, and it was turned into a regulatory umbrella in 2000. Shauna was probably the inventor of the regulatory hosting and certainly coined the phrase regulatory incubation. So her views today in that space will be extremely interesting. I'm Jerome Lusson, the CEO of Lavin Partners, dedicated to compliance and really happy to welcome you, Shauna. Thank you, Jerome. So just starting with the broad question, the hosting area has been in the press lately, notably because of some um, firms that like Grensil, were not sufficiently regulated potentially. But what do you think the state of play is on hosting in the UK at the moment? So I think the key point is that over the last three years, since 2018, the FCA realised that this sector of the industry has grown right under their nose. When I very first started it back in 2003 was when I first stepped into the appointed rep field. The original idea was just to do it for Sturgeon clients and uh, Sturgeon startups. And then over the years, more and more uh, firms have come into it as a way of offering startups and financial services a way to begin. I think the FCA didn't realise the enormity of how many companies were coming under this uh, way of beginning. And so in 2018, they first did their first review. During that first year, they found many weaknesses of firms that actually weren't towing the line. And as they then chopped it up into more areas between advice and investment management, they found other weaknesses. I believe they're two thirds of the way through the reviews from just from general uh, industry knowledge, the amount of firms that have had both visits and 166 reviews. And also, I think the important thing about the 166, that it frightens people to think it's some kind of enforcement, but really because the FCA doesn't have lots of staff to go out and sit and do um, visits to get to know people, it's a way for the FCA to understand the underlying businesses of this sector. So, so I, I, think, I, think it's, I think it's healthy what's gone on, because I think it's really um, gone through the, the woods of of the areas that maybe weren't being done very well. And it's bringing everybody up to a heightened area that both the firms and the FCA are more comfortable with. And that would be really good in the way that hosting in particular is very unique to the UK. It's been emulated in some other jurisdictions, but not much on continental Europe. And we know that in the past, it was a fantastic way for businesses to start up notably in the wholesale space, although originally appointed representatives were designed possibly more for insurance brokerage and such. Yeah, so the the, so the, so the original um, appointed reps and tied agents across Europe are still for IFAs, which, is, which are giving advice and guidance to retail investors and insurance companies to build marketing teams of their own products. One of the areas that both the FCA and regulators around Europe are afraid of is they don't realise that the wholesale industry is a lot more sophisticated and, and the retail industry is not sophisticated. And therefore, the fears of mis-selling into retail, they can't quite get their heads around, is not really affecting wholesale in the same way. But because the framework was for retail, 
it makes everybody really afraid. So, so for instance, um, in you, they're only doing predominantly insurance and retail advice. And that's why the, the European regulators who haven't gone through this kind of wholesale mini growth are very afraid. Yeah. And in a way, it's an economic advantage, I think, for Britain and has been for many years in allowing, again, on the wholesale front, private equity firms or uh, firms that distributed uh, sophisticated products to wholesale to get their businesses in order and actually benefiting from experienced compliance officers who would man the hosting platform or the so-called principal. Yeah, the other area that I think was beneficial to the UK, and this was pre-Brexit, is because we had the instant European passport, all the appointed reps in the UK had the availability to become instant tied agents in every single country in Europe. With the closure of, of Brexit, the, the cross-bordering throughout Europe has, has also been a challenge because each country in Europe, so each individual country, has to transpose the tied agency rules into their own country. So even though MIFID is seen to be across the whole of Europe, every single country then has to bring it into their law. So, so if you take Malta, which has re recently been um, mentioned under an AMF um, uh, note, Malta has adopted the Tide agent across the board, a bit like the UK, that you can sit with a company that's in Malta and your individual human beings can then passport across Europe. It's making countries like France and Austria and some of the other countries very nervous that this is going to come into their own country. But if they haven't transposed this into their own law, then they won't allow it. So I've spoken to, actually face-to-face, -to, -face, to a number of regulators. And so the ones that are allowing it today and have given it the grace of using the passport are Malta, Portugal, Germany, and um, some other peripheral markets that we don't tend to use so much are happy to use it. So I think that the history of the UK is, is going into those markets and, and they're adopting it because they're comfortable with it. Whereas Luxembourg and France and Ireland have said, absolutely not. You can't use our tied agent regulation to passport out of our own country. So that's really the key differentiator from, from what we did in the UK with the passport to what others are allowing today. Yeah, yeah for sure. And, and we're seeing this as a real hurdle as the country and its financial services is trying to, to unravel how to promote products in Europe without having a place of business in Europe. But looking at that specifically then, you know, we were promised that there would be a, a Brexit dividend. We know financial services are not really included as yet and, and may not be that easily included with, with the negotiations currently undergoing uh, with the British government. But um, we also uh, possibly still have an advantage today in order to get firms to start up, even if they might be limited into the UK market. Do you think that's viable? And do you think we're taking the right approach? Or do you see that there is perhaps an overly negative view of the appointed representative regime that may also limit its own abilities to develop in the UK? So I see it in three different ways. First of all, I think the appointed rep for what I originally set it up for in the UK is still viable. 
because there's still people leaving big firms to literally promote funds, raise money for uh, big and small companies, as in the as in the uh, corporate finance arranging side, and that's not going to go away because actually post-Brexit, the UK is growing back into what its strengths were in being a hub in the world, not just in Europe, for venture capital. Just as an example, two of our ex-appointed reps are both launching venture capital funds this week that are going public to become public funds for the first time ever. That's not something that we've seen ever before. So I think that the appetite in the UK for VC is is growing, which is really exciting, because that's always been a hub in the in the UK and and the US and Germany tried to take a hit in it and has is sadly failing. So those those people are coming back to the UK. Secondly, we have a transitionary period for European companies to come and base themselves in the UK. That will come to an end two years from now, and those those firms from Europe need a hub in the UK and the appointed rep I do see will become one of the anchor ways to come into the UK rather than getting directly authorised. And the UK should see that as a benefit to our economy, not to a negative. The flip side is countries like, so, so we in the UK don't have the memorandum of understanding. And I think one of the big challenges, and, and I found this speaking to lawyers, is there's not enough knowledge on what you can do country by country. So if you take a, an M&A situation, for instance, and you want to talk to a corporate, let's say in France, and you're based here in the UK, lawyers will not give you the guidance right now of what the financial promotion rules are and what the exemptions are between the UK and France. So if you sit in France and you want to do normal uh, M&A or venture capital work, it's not actually a regulated activity in France, but the fact that we're cross-bordering between the UK and France, nobody is giving you straight guidance. I think that's really hard, not just mm. for us, but also for accountancy firms that do um, corporate finance as a secondary business. That That's one challenge. If you sit in Germany, for instance, and you have always been used to just doing business in Germany, and you wanted to do cross-border, what what Germans used to do is set up an appointed rep in the UK, do a little bit of business in the UK, but then they had the whole of Europe. And I, th I think that's something that the Europeans didn't realise, that some of their own people were setting up companies in the UK to reverse passport across right. Europe where it was clear. Now, because the Europeans have no clear uh, corporate finance stroke venture capital regime country by country, they're actually going to lose out in Europe because no one's quite sure of how the cross-bordering works on the basis you can be sitting in Germany, but you can't then go market a deal in France because you're not regulated. But could you do that from Malta at this stage? You, you were talking about Malta earlier. I mean, presumably yeah, they've tried so to emulate the regime. Yeah. So, so technically, can, they yeah, have the passport. Exactly. So, so you can do it from Malta. You can do it from Germany. You can do it from Portugal. Portugal's really weird how they've put it together because instead of just doing arranging, you have to give advice yeah. to be able to get the tied agent regime, which kind of doesn't really work. Malta um, has allowed up until now, but I think it's going to change, has allowed British people to be um, what, uh, like 
we call approved people. They're called sorry, they're called registered people. They've allowed them to sit in Malta, albeit they really live here. And I think that will have to change. In Germany, if you want to set up a tide agent in Germany, you have to employ a German person to do the arranging. And so we have got a, a, a an underlying appointed rep that's doing it in Germany. And so they employ an actual German who lives in Germany to do the activity. They set up the meetings and then they can invite the British person to attend the meetings, albeit they're all on Zoom right now. Yeah, no, of course. And so so that takes us, you were talking about the flip side of the second advantage. What's the third advantage? You said VC strength. You said uh, the ability to, uh, you know, to... Uh, with the transition periods and the AR regime allowing the Italians and the French potentially to set up here under the AR, what's your third point? Well, the third one is that you can you, you can do um, you can have you can own a company in Europe, albeit you're not physically going to be in it. Uh, hire some local people who can then, as I say, invite you into those meetings. So so you're just actually developing your brand, but you've got to choose which jurisdiction will work for your business, um, as in whatever the, the underlying appointed rep is doing now. Um, one of the challenges... That's not so much a British advantage, right? That's back yeah, to using a, a Portuguese or yeah, German it's more, company. it's more yeah. of a, okay. a, the whole thing. And, and so another point that came up is the IFPR or, or MIFID pre-regime, which is the British uh, evolution following Brexit on capital requirements. And I just note that, not to go into any detail, but um, is that part of the benefits of now being a free Britain or did those rules uh, seem to be a bit convoluted at this stage? Well, I think I think those rules came into play as in a consultation paper before Brexit was definitely in place. So, so although we knew Brexit was coming, everybody obviously hoped it wouldn't, the IFPR was already in place. So whether Brexit had happened or not, I think it would it, it would have definitely gone ahead. And what the FCA, I believe, is trying to do is, is effectively supposedly make it cleaner and clearer, but actually it's so complicated that I don't think it is clearer than it was before. And it's but the other thing is what it's doing is it's making a level playing field because before we had we currently have CAD exempt firms, for instance, that have a baseline of capital, whereas in the in the new framework, everyone's going to be done on a percentage of turnover basis uh, and, and that everyone has to have more capital. The flip side is, which I think is something that many firms are beginning to look into, is many corporate finance firms that I've, I've seen were CAD exempt firms only because they wanted the passport. Now there's no passport. Some of those companies are looking at their day-to-day -day business again. And actually, I've seen a few people call me up, well, call me up to sort of some general advice and say, actually, I don't think I need the CAD exempt anymore because I'm not going to passport into Europe. I can now become an Article 3 firm. And an Article 3 firm is not impacted by the new capital rules. So well, that's an area I don't think people have focused on, but I mm. think is going to develop further. So, so potentially some simplicity coming through there, but not necessarily directly, uh, or at least not immediately simple to work out. Um, 
Moving on, you, you were talking a bit about the retail element and corporate finance. It's true that the retail wholesale divide has been a, a major uh, issue in the appointed re uh, representative regime. Um, when we go to the more detailed uh, review, corporate finance firms, venture capital, they have a special treatment under the FCA uh, handbook, and to a degree, their client is is has to be defined and should be the corporate for which they're acting to raise money, for example. A lot of the hosting firms uh, have also interpreted that um, potentially uh, the client is the investors that they might be speaking to, which might otherwise be treated as, under the, the rules, a contact. And that leads us to this very particular corporate finance world where there is a retail element which might be linked not so much to arranging but to advising. And on the other hand, most of the hosting firms are MIFID firms where you know, the client is not necessarily treated or the corporate finance is not necessarily treated as corporate finance, but just another firm in the financial services industry. And that's on the MIFID. And would that, if that's okay, what they so, do, create so new again, risks? So when, when RDR first came in, the Retail Distribution Review, uh, I actually sat with a very well-known lawyer called Daniel Tunkel, and we've hashed this out between us and then went to the perimeter guidance team at the FCA. Even the FCA have joked with me in the past, where did this come from? But it came from our putting our heads together and realising that many people in corporate finance back then were in the mid-50s, 60s, and I just couldn't see them taking level six exams at that age. So what, what we what we deciphered together was to make a limitation which has been adopted by the whole industry. So the limitation is limitation to have the, the, the client, which is the company you're raising money for. So the company you're raising money for is your client. If it doesn't tick the boxes of being a large undertaking, it is by definition a retail client. Therefore, you would then fall into the RDR uh, category uh, six for, for examinations of the individuals. That was never going to happen. So we, as Sturgeon, put in a limitation for retail advice to uh, corporate finance only. And that way, you had to have a rate, you still have to have a ranging for retail, which you can do across the board because you can do it for other things, but for the advisory for retail to only be for the limitation of corporate finance. So the other thing that I think is also a gap, a gap that uh, principal firms with the retail permission for advice have not looked into is, um, is the area of disputes, which is a chapter DISP in the FCA handbook. If you're, if you're advising SMEs for corporate finance and they are retail, by definition, they have the ability for compensation under the financial um, compensation rules. So the, the little boxes that many principal firms have ticked that they can opt out of FOS and FCS uh, fees, they have to opt back in because those retail clients are two categories. An SME is a company that has less than six and a half million of turnover and five million on the balance sheet, and a company that has less than two million on the on the uh, turnover is known as a micro enterprise. Both of those are retail, and both of those have a right to the compensation scheme. 
So therefore, the principal firms that take on that mission are also taking on more risk because those underlying clients of the appointed reps and the firm are able to seek compensation up to £300,000. And the other thing that most principal firms, I don't think, know is these are not just for UK companies, but companies that come to the UK for advice from anywhere in the world can claim that compensation. So that it is higher risk, but up until now, I think there's many principal firms raising money for SMEs, but they're opting everybody up to elected professionals when the elect when the directors of those companies don't have the relevant experience. And if yeah, they no. if they do the opt-ups, I've been to other firms to to do compliance reviews where the directors did not have that experience. Therefore, they cannot be elected professionals and they should be retail. Yeah, and it's particularly difficult, uh, as we and know. Then, uh, like we like you say, the underlying investor in those in those um, in those uh, SMEs is deemed a, is deemed a corporate finance contact. However, because the regulator is very jumpy to do with anything to do with retail, those those underlying investors, in my humble opinion, should still be noted down that they are either elected professionals or retail, because from a principal's point of view, they are still risk. And even though they're self-certifying, so you can't receive a financial promotion, which is all they're going to receive, um, to invest in these SMEs unless they are a particular category. And even though they're a corporate finance contact, they still have rights. And if you don't classify them as certified high net worth or or sophisticated high net worth, they can go and complain. So you still have to categorise them as something to receive the financial promotion, not just a tick in the box, so corporate finance contacts, or you're opening yourself up to risk and scrutiny. Thank you. I mean, we've run out of time. This has been uh, amazing, quite deep. So I'm sure <laughs> listeners will take a lot from this and, and really, really relevant. Uh, at the moment, this is very important that the industry wakes up and, and becomes more alert to, to those various parts of the rules. So I'm very grateful for your time. Really nice to see you today. And I hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. Have Thank a good you. day. Bye. Bye-bye.